Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is five tips for advisors on how to get from 500 million to 5 billion. A conversation with Steve Sandusky, podcast host, coach, and consultant, and founder of Belay Advisor. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you aren't already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, please feel free to share it widely. Success means something different to everyone. For some advisors, a lifestyle practice that allows them to make a good living with a client base that's happy and content is something to be proud of. Yet for others, there's a stronger focus on growth, maximizing business value, and building a lasting legacy. In this episode, we're going to take a look at achieving growth, more specifically, how to take a giant leap, let's say going from managing assets of $500 million to $5 billion or more. To help identify how to achieve such a level of growth, I've asked Steve Sandusky to join the show. Because Steve is one of those guys who top financial advisors turn to when they're trying to identify their secret sauce for success. Why? Because he's built his career guiding advisors face-to-face, so to speak, so he knows what works and what doesn't when advisors are seeking ways to grow. Many of you might already know Steve from at least one of his podcast shows, Between Now and Success, On Your Mark, Get Set, Grow, and Keen on Retirement or one of his New York Times bestselling books. Yet what you might not know is that Steve first started in the corporate world and in 1993 joined the wealth management industry. He helped to launch the corporate RIA at Securities America, coaching advisors and moving from commission-based to fee-based models. In 2001, he teamed up with neighbor Ron Carson of Carson Wealth Management to launch Peak Advisor Alliance, a coaching program based on Carson's success principles. Steve later formed his own firm, Belay Advisor, tapping into his experience and providing coaching and training programs to advisors. He then took it one more level, and with business partner Mitch Anthony developing ROL Advisor, a suite of digital tools, comprehensive training, and marketing support for financial advisors who want to deliver life-centered planning. Steve has over 30 years of experience in helping individuals and companies grow, and I look forward to hearing more about his backstory and getting his advice on how he would counsel an advisor who asks, what does it take to get from $500 million to $5 billion? Let's jump right into it. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, well, it's a thrill to be here. Great. Let's jump in. Let's start the most obvious question. Tell us a little bit about your background. 
Well, I mean, it goes back a ways. So started in corporate America, worked for three Fortune 500 companies, including a brief stint at Hewlett Packard at their headquarters in Palo Alto. And I think you know, one thing I just want to kind of mention with that, I really learned something interesting. So I was there back in 89 in 90. And I pretty naively thought that the tech industry was in a bit of a lull because the PCs had already come out. The internet hadn't happened yet. But what I really realized, and this really, I think, set me up for the rest of my career is that as I look back on it, there were things going on at the fringes out in Silicon Valley. And back then, you know, the internet was essentially being incubated. The cypherpunk movement was in place. It was setting the stage for cryptocurrencies. Artificial intelligence was being worked on. All this amazing stuff was going on, but I wasn't seeing it because I wasn't looking for it. And so over the years, I've really tried to have an intentional effort to be searching out for those things at the fringes, going down some of these rabbit holes, because while not every fringe is going to turn out to be the next Facebook, some of them do. And so I think you have to put yourself in a position to spot those early. So I think that the early time at, uh, at HP, I think, was, was sort of instrumental in how my career has developed over the years. Love it. And you had shared with me in a previous conversation that you worked with Securities America and helped to launch their corporate RAA. So tell us a little bit about that, that pivot from HP to the financial services world. Yeah. So that was back in 1993. And I wanted to get into the financial services industry for a long time. And it wasn't until the Securities America opportunity came around that it actually happened. And uh, my boss at the time was Janine Wertheim. You, you probably know Janine. Uh, mm -hmm. She's been around quite a while, just a, a terrific leader and certainly learned a great deal from her. So when I joined, one of the objectives was to start the corporate RIA. And Janine really led that effort. And I worked closely with her on that. And so part of my role was to really set up the third party money manager relationships. It was to help train the advisors and converting them from a commission business to a fee based business. So it was very uh, certainly formative in my career and met a lot of great people, was immersed in the business. And I think it really paved the way for what I'm doing in the business today. So, and how specifically did that experience frame the work you do today with advisors? Well, my first job, as I mentioned there, really was to help set up the corporate RIA. It was me, Janine, and another gentleman for the most part. And so I have always loved the investment side. I've loved working with advisors. And so I think really during that time, it just cemented the fact that I really enjoyed the business of the business. I've always loved writing. And so to this day, obviously, I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of media type work and podcasting. So a lot of that, I think, was formed back in those early days back in Securities America. And I also know that you spent some time in the consulting space working with a familiar name to many of our listeners, Ron Carson. So tell us a little bit about that, how you got there and how that shaped things. Yeah. So it really goes back to Securities America. So when I was working there, we tried to recruit Ron and his partner at the time, Todd Feltz. And so that's when I initially met him. And then I think it was maybe maybe three years later, my family moved to the same neighborhood that Ron was living in at the time. And it turned out that our kids went to school together. Ron and I would bump into each other at different functions there in the neighborhood. And then uh, one day, Ron called and said, hey, you know, we should kind of get together. We should catch up, see what's going on. And by that point, one of my daughters and one of his daughters had become good friends. And so you know, Ron and I had sort of got to know each other a little bit better that way. So then one day I spent a Saturday morning at his home and we basically hatched this idea of a coaching program. And up to that point, he had a program where he was inviting people to come to Omaha once a year for a full day 
show where he would basically teach them everything he knew. And then I basically said, look, why don't we make this a year round program and we can add add all kinds of training. And uh, next thing we know, we're partnering and uh, we launched that program. I think we started working together in May of 2001. We launched the coaching program that fall. And then over the course of 11 years, we went from zero to about 1,000 financial advisors that we were coaching. So it was a great ride. Ron and I had a, had a great time working together, really built something special that is still going gangbusters to this day. Yeah. And that's the Peak Advisor Alliance? Yeah. So it was called Peak Advisor Alliance uh, back when I was running it. And today I think it's called Carson Group Coaching. Got it. And for those not familiar, Steve, tell us a little bit about Ron Carson, why that's a pivotal name in the industry and what was Peak Advisor Alliance? Yeah. So, you know, Ron is a pretty amazing guy. And I mean, there's a lot of things I could say about him, but I think a couple that really stick out is one is he's probably the most focused and driven person that I've ever met. I mean, he's just really clear on what it is that he wants to do and what he wants to accomplish. So I think that's been a real key to his success. The second is he's extremely disciplined and he's very methodical. He's very driven and disciplined. And I think that's been a huge aspect of, of his success as well. And we'll get into it more as we move further, but just speaking about Ron Carson, why is being disciplined and methodical so important to success as a financial advisor? Well, it's so easy to get distracted. There's so many things that can take our eye off the ball. And so I think you've got to be extremely clear on what it is that you're trying to accomplish. You've got to figure out, if I know this is what I want to accomplish, how exactly do I need to go about doing that? And then you just have to have the discipline to stick to it, to to persevere, to have that grit. And whether it's Ron Carson, whether it's Joe Duran, I mean, we can go down the list Pretty much anybody that has achieved at a high level, it's because they've got the discipline to do the work that's necessary to reach the level of results that they want to achieve. I mean, that's how you become world-class is you stick to it. You do what's required day in, day out, even when you don't want to do it, even when you're tired, you get up and you do the work. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting concept. I agree with you totally. But one thing I'll say to you from where I sit is that I think a lot of it starts with clarity on what your true north is. If you're clear about what it is you want to accomplish, what your goals are, oftentimes the steps you need to take in order to get from here to there become much clearer and more obvious. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it does It does start with the clarity, starts with the why and figuring out what is it that I want to do? Because If you're not excited, if you're not passionate about what it is that you're doing, then it's not going to happen because when push comes to shove and it becomes difficult and there's a roadblock, there's an obstacle. If you're not totally passionate, totally clear on what it is you're trying to accomplish, you're just not going to get out of bed that morning. You're not going to do the work. So yeah, you've got to have something that totally excites you, that's meaningful, that's impactful, that's making a difference, that's going to enable you to push through when things get tough. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. So let's talk a little bit about the work you do now. When was your coaching practice formed and what niche did you fill? Yeah, it started in 2015. And what I wanted to do really was just be a boutique firm. I mean, if I look at at what we did at, at Peak and now Carson Group Coaching, 
you know, it was a large company and we were working with, as I mentioned, about a thousand financial advisors when I left. And so I didn't want to recreate that. And, you know, they do a great job with that. So I really wanted to have more of a boutique firm, work with a small number of clients and just get focused on what it is that they want to accomplish. I have no agenda. I have no biases. I'm not trying to pigeonhole people into, well, you need to do it this way or that way, or this should be your objective. It's about what do you want to accomplish? And so you mentioned here just a minute ago, about the importance of having clarity. That's the process. That's, I mean, that's the initial part of the process, which is what are you trying to accomplish? And then we figure that out. And then we put together the steps and the methods and the framework and the playbooks to actually make that happen. And who are your typical clients and what are they looking to achieve? Are they independent business owners? Are they employees of bulge bracket firms? Are they both? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's mostly been the independents just because that's the industry that I've grown up in. I have worked with folks from the wirehouses, but generally speaking, it's been the folks more on the independent side. And there's really not one thing that they're looking for. Again, since I am a boutique firm, people know that it's about what they're trying to accomplish. They might have something unique. For example, I've got a client that I'm working with who has a specialty in working with retirees from a specific branch of the federal government, which is a pretty unique niche they've got there. Another client I work with has tax expertise in cross-border planning, which is also fascinating. Another client uh, works in the Christian market uh, with retirees. So, you know, they're all different and ultimately, you know, they want to grow, but then they've got other things that they need to do as well. And so they look at me as someone who's been around a long time, who knows all the different aspects, who's a great quarterback and can help them figure out the plan, the process, the playbooks necessary to achieve what it is they're trying to accomplish. I was going to ask you that. So it's obvious that the number one reason somebody would reach out to a coach is to help accelerate growth. What are some of the other things they're looking to solve for? Well, it could be the client service model. It could be that they understand that they need to differentiate themselves. It's not just about investment management. It's not just about financial planning, but it's about how can I really deepen the relationship with my clients so that they're going to refer more people to me, for example. And so it's really more of the back office piece of client communication. It could be about messaging and branding. It could be about doing a better job of having that clarity. As you mentioned here just a moment ago, it's like, what is our message? What is our value proposition? What is our distinction from the other advisors? And how do we more effectively communicate? So those are things I absolutely love working on is just helping them get that clarity, the messaging, the branding, the communication, the marketing. You know, those are all things that are really you know, a, a good piece of the mix. And most typically, are they coming to you early in their careers, early in their status as a business owner, or sort of later in the game as they need to solve for succession and hit a wall? What does it look like? It's really probably people that have been in the business for 15 to 20 years. Would uh, if, if I had to pick a bracket there, I'd probably say somewhere in the 15 to 25 years in the industry. So they've got experience. I mean, I'm not really working with folks that are new to the industry. It's just not not the best fit for me, but folks that have been around, they're successful and now they're looking to solve for some kind of issue that uh, they look to me and they say, you're the kind of guy that's got the expertise that can help me with that. So tell us more about ROL Advisor. I believe you said it's called Return on Life. What's the backstory on that and what niche does it fill? Yeah. So very interesting company. So this is a company that I co-founded with my partner, Mitch Anthony, and some of the folks listening to this might know Mitch. So he's one of the country's leading authorities on what he's calling life-centered planning. So 
we're all familiar with life planning or financial life management. And Mitch is one of the pioneers in that area. So what we did is, and I've known him for, for quite a few years. So we got together about five years ago and set up a partnership where we basically took some of the tools that he had created over the years and we digitized them. So we really modernized them. And then we added a training and marketing component to it. And the ultimate objective is that as investing to some extent becomes commoditized as financial planning, even to some extent becomes commoditized, advisors have to figure out how am I going to differentiate myself? And so we believe that a lot of it has to do with the nature of the relationship that you're developing with your client and the nature of the discovery process that you have, which is how well do you know your client and how well are your clients using their money to live their best life possible? And so that's what the program is about, is helping clients make better decisions with their money, help them get more return on their money, more return on life, so to speak. And so it's been a lot of fun and uh, we, we think the sky's the limit with that program. That's awesome. So let me ask you a question. I am personally a very big believer in coaching. I believe as a business owner that my thinking can be insular. And I love the idea of having somebody who's got a lens into things other than mine can help me to sort of see things more broadly. So I'm a believer. But for a financial advisor, why would an advisor, why should an advisor use a coach? Well, if you think about it, a financial advisor works with a client because the client is not an expert in the money side of the business, so to speak. And so a coach is no different in that as individuals, we don't have all the answers. And so a coach can help an advisor point out their blind spots. They can shine a light on the blind spots. They're an outside, unbiased third party whose sole objective is to help you get better. They can help you shorten the learning curve. They provide accountability. And so ultimately, it's about having this trusted person who you can talk to, a go-to person that has seen most of, of what that advisor is likely experiencing already and has the ability to guide them, to coach them on how do you solve these issues, how do you shorten that learning curve, and then have that accountability piece, which I think is also important because left to our own devices we're oftentimes just going to take the path of least resistance. And when you have a coach who you know you have to show up for, you've got to do the work because that person is going to call you out on it. You know, that's When that works, you're going to get results faster than you would on your own. Mm -hmm. So what do you see as the real barriers to success for advisors? What are the things that trip them up the most? I have a belief, which is that every advisor can grow to whatever level it is that they want to get to. And that really the only thing that's going to hold them back is does their desire match their dream? And so I think any of the barriers that we might think are there, I think are just self-imposed barriers. And if you can change the mindset, if you can work with someone who can help you see that and help you break through, I don't really think there are barriers. They're just mental barriers as opposed to real barriers. That's a great answer. Love it. Okay, so I want to get to sort of the heart of this episode, which is when we spoke a while back, you and I discussed the top concerns or issues that advisors, and I think it was specifically RAA firm owners faced when they're trying to grow their business. And it's a topic we often discuss in our conversations with advisors, both those 
that are working in a, at a traditional firm and considering independence or those that are already independent. So I was hoping to spend some time with you on that here. If you are counseling an advisor who was looking to grow his business, and let's use an example, say from 500 million to 5 billion, a lofty goal for sure. And if we follow what you just said, that every advisor has the ability to grow to whatever level he wants to, the only barrier is self-imposed. How does he get there? How would you counsel him or her? Well, I hope you'll indulge me for a minute here. (laughs) So before I directly answer that, I'd love to just really share a little bit of context on that, because I don't think there's just like one answer to that. So just a, a couple points of context, and then I'm happy to go through four or five um, points that I think would be helpful there. So the first is that I did a webinar here earlier this year with Peter Malouk. Many of you will know Peter, head of creative planning, and we had about 250 advisors on the call, and I did a poll with them, and I specifically wanted to find out how big you wanted to grow. And so the question I asked was, by the time you retire, what is the annual revenue you want to have grown your business to? And I gave them several different ranges. Well, one option was eh, no particular number. I just want to grow. So about 12% of the respondents said that. Another 8% said they wanted to grow to about 1 million in revenue. 28% said they wanted to go 1 to 5 million. 15% said they wanted to go 5 to 10 million. And then 37% said they wanted to grow greater than 10 million. So for context, I think it's important that not everybody wants to grow that big. So that that's kind of the first point. And in my case here in this poll, just a little over a third said that they wanted to grow to 10 million or more, which you could essentially say translates to about 1 billion in assets. So I think that's a key thing is, do you really want to get there? And then I think a second quick point of context here is that there is no one way to go from 500 million to 5 billion. And if you look at all the folks that have achieved 5 billion in assets, they've done it a different way. There's no one path. And it's sort of like reading a self-help book. You know, if you read enough of them, they all start to sound the same. And one of the common things you hear from them is, let's just look at what other successful people are doing and let's just copy them. And to some extent that makes sense, but the reality is you're not going to copy Ron Carson. If I tell you everything that Ron did to get to where he is, you're still not going to get there. If I tell you what Rick Edelman did or Peter Malouk or Joe Duran, you're still not going to get there. You've got to blaze your own path. Now, with that said, there are some commonalities. There are some traits. There are some ideas, some frameworks that you can use. And you know, that's what I'm, you know, I'm happy to share, like I said, four or five of those that I think when you have this kind of structure, then you can figure out for you, how can you take this framework and get to where you want to go? Yeah, because I think what you're saying is you need to bring your own authentic self to the process. And I'm not Ron Carson or Peter Malouk. And so what made them them and what attributed to their success wouldn't work for me because I don't have their DNA. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And you didn't start where they started. You didn't have the background that they had. You didn't have the luck or the advantage or the disadvantage sort of thing. So yeah, everyone's starting from a different place. You know, Mm. we're trying to end up in the same place, but we have a different starting point. And so I think that's important to understand. Yep. All right. So now I want to really get to it. So if I put a gun to your head and said, what are the five key areas that an advisor needs to focus on to set him on the path toward growth? What would you say those are? Well, I'd say the first is that it starts with people. 
in that you have to surround yourself with absolutely the best people you possibly can. So if you take nothing else from what I'm going to share with you here, it's that, the best people, because if you have the best people, then they're going to find a way to help you be uh, successful. And so just a, a couple of quick things on that in terms of, well, you know, how do you hire these best people? Well, one is always try to hire what I would say 5X or 10X better than the person you're replacing. So if you have someone leave, then the next person you want to hire, they need to be dramatically better than who you are replacing because that really creates this virtual cycle of ever-improving team members. So I think that's a key. And a second thing is that this idea, so often you hear people say, well, we're trying to hire people that fit the culture. I think we need to get away from that idea. And instead, what I think we need to do, instead of hiring people that fit your culture, I think we need to hire people that will further your culture. Because if we're just looking for cultural fit, then we're just going to end up with a lot of people that just look and act like ourselves. And that's not going to be good for the company. It's not going to be good for the clients. It's not going to be good for society. So I think that is an important thing to think about. And then uh, one other thing related to the people is that if you are going to grow to 5 billion, then you're going to have to move from being more of an advisory practice to more of an advisory business or an advisory institution, which means you need to be thinking about professional management. And so I look at firms like Wealth Enhancement Group. They've got Jeff Deco at the helm. I look at Colony Capital. They've got Michael Nathanson at the helm. So these are super talented professional managers. And so if you want to get to 5 billion, oftentimes it's not you as the advisor that can move into that. Oftentimes you may have to bring in professional management. So I think that's a key as well. Yeah. And I want to ask you about the concept of professional management because Mark DeBergian, who I think is the granddaddy of the concept of professional management in RIA, certainly agrees with that. And I would too. A lot of business owners feel concerned about the ability to afford it and to know when is the right time to transition themselves from being the COO or professional manager uh, and bring somebody else in. So I'd love it if you'd take a minute just to weigh in on that. Well, I'm not sure that there's a specific number where you could say once you get to 10 million in revenue or 20 million or 2 billion in assets that it's time to bring in an outside CEO. Like I said, I think some advisors can make the segue and others can't. I've had folks on my podcast, some have been the CEO, they've been able to grow with the companies. Others say, you know, I just really like working with clients. And then they bring on a strong COO, someone who can really run the day-to-day -day management. I think of John Jones as an example of Brighton Jones. So one of the things he did was he wanted to take a year off from the business and travel the world with his family while his kids were still young. And so he methodically went through a multi-year period where he put the people in place. He put the systems in place. He had a strong COO. He wanted to make sure that I had someone who was responsible for getting clients, someone who was responsible for keeping clients. And he worked through that whole process so that at some point he got there and he said, you know, I'm ready to go. And off he went and was gone for a year. And when he got back, the business was dramatically bigger than when he left. Yeah, I know that story. It's a good story. It can happen. It's not easy. Don't get me wrong. It's not easy at all, but it is possible to do something like that. But it, again, comes back to the people, which was the first point I talked about. Yep. Okay. So let's, I'm sure there's a lot we could say about people, but let's move on to the second point. 
Yeah. And the second point I would say is something that I don't think most people really talk about, yet I think it's critical. And it's this idea of having a philosophy. And what I mean by that is to do, I would say, some serious self-examination and really try and understand what is your driving force? What is it that animates how you do what you do, how you think about business, how you think about life? And this, I'm not talking about mission and vision statements. Rather, it's just more of a, I would say, like an overarching philosophy that encompasses everything that you've come to believe over your lifetime of experience. And it's it's similar to what some of the best sports coaches do. So they have a philosophy about how they run their team. So having that philosophy helps create the culture. So it's really, it's like, you know, it's your, it's your combination of thoughts and beliefs and values and instincts and actions. And, you know, it really underpins what drives you, you know, the why and the how of what you do. And so oftentimes when I'm working with my coaching clients, I take them through an exercise to really help them clarify that philosophy. And I've identified four parts in terms of the exercise that I go through. And the first part is what I call your truth. And so this is really trying to get at, well, what do you really believe? And it's a simple question. And the question is, what I know to be true is, and then they answer. And then the second part is because. So what I know to be true is discipline is is the way to succeed because it's worked in my life. You know, I'm just giving you that as an example. But then I asked them to do that 15 times, to answer that question 15 times, to really get at the heart of what their truth is. So that's really part one. Part two is a values clarification exercise. We don't really need to go into detail on that. I think everyone understands the importance of having a value system. The third piece there is what I call your non-negotiables. So these are things that you're like, I'm not compromising on this. And it could be things like when you work with me or when I do my work, I'm all about preparation. I'm not going to compromise on being prepared. So just like this podcast you and I are doing, Mindy, it's been phenomenal in terms of your level of preparation to prepare me for the conversation that we're having right now. And I think it's fantastic. And so you know, that could be a non-negotiable. And then this final piece I call your rallying cry. This is sort of a, a short statement that encapsulates how you think. And it's just, it becomes a metaphor that you can turn to when things are tough and you think, here's my rallying cry. This is what's going to get me through this period of time right now. So that's an exercise that I think is super helpful. This idea of having a guiding philosophy mm. that you use for business and life. Yeah, well, I love that. I, you know, I call it everyone's true north, but I love the exercise, the questions you ask to get at it. Okay, how about number three? Number three, this is something that actually I first heard from Joe Duran and, and other folks have talked about this as well. And Joe had mentioned this on a podcast that I did with him a number of years ago. He said that one of the big keys to his success, and he's one of the few folks who have built two multi-billion dollar advisory firms. <laughs> and he sold the first one, I think, for about $75 million. And then his second one, he sold for a reported $750 yeah. million, a 10x. So, to Goldman Sachs, no less. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so he said one of his keys was to find a big wave that you can ride. And in his case, he said he rode two waves. The first wave that he rode with his first company was this shift from a commission business to a fee-based business. And that's essentially, that, that was the same wave that, that I was riding back at Securities America in the 1990s, as we were helping advisors shift from the commission to the fee-based assets that are management. 
And then the second wave that he said he rode was this shift from basically money management to financial guidance or to financial planning. And that was obviously what they created there at United Capital. And so he said one of his keys was spot the waves. And one of the ways he said to do that was just really put yourself in the shoes of the consumer and see the problem from their perspective. What's Mm -hmm. the problem? And then are you the person who can solve it? And do you have the resources to actually solve that? Love it. Smart. And number four? Four, I would say, is you need to have a repeatable system that generates a steady flow of new clients. Now, that sounds obvious, which it is. But it's really hard. (laughs) And uh, I think that's the tricky part for most advisors is how do I have this system that generates a consistent flow of new clients? So let me give you a couple examples here of folks that have done it that I think everyone's going to be familiar with here. So one is Rick Edelman. And as I look at what Rick has done is he's essentially become a media company. He's got about 10 best-selling books. I think there's more than a million of those books in print. He's got a public television show. He has a podcast, he has a radio show, he does seminars, they do online advertising. I mean, he's, he's basically everywhere and he is an educator and he's really built the company on his back and the rest of his team about educating people. And he's doing that through multiple forms of media. So that's been his ticket to creating a steady stream of new clients. Uh, I think another example would be Ken Fisher. So uh, Fisher's built... Fisher Investments, I think they have over $100 billion in assets under management. And, and as I look at what they've done there, it looks like they've really done three things. One is massive marketing. You can't go online to any investment website and not see an ad for Fisher Investments. A second thing they did was they had a specific focus on investment management. They really hang, hung their hat and hang their hat on this idea of being an investment manager who, for the most part, is going to be using individual equities for their investment management. And then third is they have a very strong sales and service oriented culture with high team member accountability. So I think those three things really help them create a repeatable system that uh, that generates a lot of new business form. Okay. And how about fifth and final? Fifth, I would say you just got to be a darn good advisor. I'm not trying to be flip with that, but you've got to be better than 95, 96, 98% of the other advisors out there if you really want to get to this 5 billion or so in investments under management. Because I mean, great marketing, it's going to get clients in the door. But if you can't continue to serve those clients, if you can't have a great client experience, if you don't have great people working for you, then as fast as those people are going to come in the front door, they're going to be leaking out the back door. So yes, you need the great marketing, but you also need to be a darn good advisor and a really outstanding advisory firm. And when you have those two things, that is going to be an unbeatable combination. Yeah. And let me let me ask you a question. What role do you think inorganic growth plays in getting from 500 million to a billion. And again, I want to be clear, I'm picking 500 million to a billion just because they're big round numbers. But what we're talking about is the ability to impact and really accelerate, exponentially accelerate growth. What are the things you can do? So these five things are great. But curious about your philosophy on inorganic growth, which would be something only available to an independent business owner and not a captive employee. 
Yeah, well, you know, once you decide that that's the right strategy, then I think there's a number of things here to think about. So one is you've got to have a very clear value proposition in that why is it that someone would want to come and and be part of your organization? So you've got to have certainly have that very clear. You've got to have A plus people on your team. So we talked about the importance of making sure that you've got the very best people. You've got to execute flawlessly, of course. And so I think if you do some of those things, you're definitely going to be in a position. So, you know, let's go back to Ron Carson here for a moment. So it took Ron, and I might be slightly off in the number of years here, but I'm going to say about 25 years for him to grow from zero to 1 billion in assets under management. And I think he did that through sheer force of will, through outworking everybody else, providing a great client experience and great results for his clients. But he realized that for him to go from 1 billion to 5 billion to 10 billion, the strategies that he had been doing up to that point were not going to get him there. And so for his next leg of massive growth, he had to come up with an inorganic strategy like we're talking about here. And as a result of that, the acquisition strategy, of course, you know, he went from 1 billion to 10 or 12 billion, whatever the number is today. So yeah, if you do it well, it can absolutely be a game changer. Yeah, for sure. And the key is doing it well. I want to pivot for a second. You know, we record this in September of 2020, smack in the midst of COVID crisis, and many, many advisors around the country are still working from home. And we've heard from many that say, I never want to go back to working in an office. And others say, I miss the camaraderie. I miss the water cooler talk. I miss, you know, being out of the house and and in the office. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the impact of working from home. So as you talk with your coaching clients, do you think that working from home has any ultimate impact on productivity and what's its role there? Yeah. Well, as I look at COVID-19, basically what I think it's done here is it's taken trends that have already been in place and basically sped them up. So what might've taken five years to evolve is basically happening here in five months. And so this idea, this trend toward decentralized work or working from home, this trend toward digital marketing, virtual marketing, those trends have been in place for a while, but COVID has just massively accelerated it. And what I'm seeing is there's some firms that are functioning quite well in this environment. I mean, and I I look at myself and I've been work from anywhere for the past 15 years. And so I've had all the technology and all this. So me from a business standpoint, it hasn't had much of an effect because I've fortunately been doing this for a very long time, but that's not the case for a lot of other firms. And so what's really happened, I think, is it's really highlighted the importance of leadership and the traits that leaders need right now in order to be effective. In fact, uh, earlier this week, I was just having this this very conversation with Cecile Munoz of U.S. Executive Search and Consulting. And you may remember this quote from Warren Buffett. He famously said, you only find out who is swimming naked when the tide goes out. Well, COVID-19 to me, that's our tide going out. And Mm -hmm. it's really exposing what I would say are two types of leaders. One is those leaders who have the emotional intelligence, they've got the empathy, they've got the adaptability to just thrive in the environment that we're in right now. And then you've got another type of leader who is stuck in cement. You know, they're, they're stuck in the old ways of doing business. Well, the rules have changed. I mean, and, and it's changed overnight. And so I think a lot of firms are going to fall by the wayside. They're going to have to sell 
because they're just not prepared to deal with this. And then on the other end, it creates a massive opportunity yeah. for the very best leaders in our industry to continue to grow, to acquire those firms and provide amazing service for the clients. Yeah. And do you think that this COVID-19 crisis has had any impact on marketing and messaging? I do. And I think in a similar way, it's accelerated trends that were already in place. And so, you know, there's another old saying, things change slowly than all at once. Well, you know, COVID's are all at once here too. And so, I think that the most successful firms, and I, I talk to people both in financial services, and I also spend a lot of time talking to leaders in other industries as well. And there's a clear consensus that we're not going back to the old ways of doing business. And as it relates specifically to marketing and messaging, I think advisors have to do a full-on pivot to what I'll call techno-marketing. And basically what I'm just meaning by that is it's sort of an umbrella term that encompasses social marketing, digital media, email marketing, virtual marketing, that's all powered and scaled by technology. And so mm -hmm. I think the advisors that are going to be successful going forward, they have to get skilled and schooled in this techno marketing in all aspects of that. Now, that's not the only way we're going to market, but that is certainly going to be a key. It's going to be part of a, a hybrid type of, of marketing that'll include this techno as well as the the in-person in real life marketing as well. You know, that's an interesting point because I think you're a hundred percent right about that. And the most successful business owners were already good at techno marketing, digital marketing and the like, and getting better at it as the world continues to change and probably changes for good. But it raises the point that for someone who is a captive employee advisor, so the advisor sitting at Merrill Lynch, one of the driving factors for people wanting to go independent is the inability or the limitation on their ability to really differentiate and express themselves, social media or otherwise, because of a heavy-handed compliance culture. So one of the things we're hearing, well, two things. One is that working from home has shown people that they're more self-reliant and less dependent upon a big brand or a big infrastructure than they thought. So it's been a dress rehearsal for independence. And two, it's given them the time, sort of a new lens, the lens of crisis through which to evaluate their firms and whether or not the model, meaning being an employee of a firm is still the way to go. So we think it's sort of further accelerating this push toward independence. Yeah, oh, I totally agree. And along with that, it's highlighting leadership and management because there are definitely folks who are saying, I don't want my people working from home. I want them in the office where I can see them. And basically, if you're one of those leaders, what you're saying is, I don't trust you. Yeah. I don't trust my team. And those leaders aren't going to make it. I mean, I'm, I'm here to tell you right now that you're just not going to make it because Gen Z, the millennials, they want the freedom and they're going to do a good job. They're going to work hard. They're not slackers, but yeah. you need to trust them. Yeah, you need I to let them you. live up to your confidence in them. Yeah, you need to empower them. I couldn't agree with you more. One final question, Steve. In your own podcast series, Between Now and Success, you, you talk to a lot of uber successful people. Would love it if you'd share two or three tips or ideas that these folks have discussed with you, their own secret success formula, if you will, that others might be able to learn from. 
Yeah, well, I'd love to. Yeah, so uh, a lot I could choose from. <laughs> so let me think here from about two or three here. Well, well, one that it certainly comes to mind here was a conversation I had with Elliot Weisbluth. Elliot uh, was the founder or co-founder of Hightower. And one of the things he said to me was every year he fires himself. And what he meant by that was, he said at the end of the year, he just literally, he sits down with himself and he says, you know, Elliot, you're fired. And then he turns around and he rehires himself. And the idea behind this is that if you fire yourself, then you have to ask yourself, well, why did the board fire me? What did I not do? What didn't I see? Where was I too slow? What mistakes did I make that led to my firing? So there's a little bit of self-examination there. And then the second part is I'm going to rehire myself. So what you've done is you've detached yourself from the sunk costs. You've detached yourself from the past decisions that you've made. And now that you're rehired, you can start with a clean slate. And so I think that's a great exercise. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I think it initially may have, go, have gone back to Andy Grove at Intel, who, who, who has a, a pretty amazing story that I'd be happy to share with you if you'd like as well, somewhat along those lines. But I, I think it's a great exercise. Fire yourself, rehire yourself, let go of the baggage, start anew. Love it. Let me share another example here. Along this idea of fire yourself is what I would say is upgrade yourself. This is uh, basically inspired from a conversation that I had with Peter Malouk earlier this year. And he said something really fascinating to me during our conversation. And he said that they have hundreds of wealth managers in their organization. And he said, they all operate under a similar investment strategy. They have a similar brand. They have a similar planning process. But he said, we've done the analysis and we have basically stabilized for the size of each advisor's book of business. And we've tried to see, well, what makes one advisor more successful than the other? And he said that when you stabilize for the size of their business, he said, there's a very, very wide discrepancy on the growth of their practices and where the referrals are coming from. And so Peter said what that told him was, yes, part of your success as an advisor is the investments. Part of it is the brand. Part of it is the planning. But he said a big, big part of it is the advisor themselves. And so I think it's critically important that as advisors, as professionals, as business owners, we have to be lifelong learners. We have to shine a light on ourselves. We have to identify the blind spots. We have to continue to grow, to improve, to learn, to be open to new things. And when you do that, I think, and you continue to upgrade yourself, I think that's going to be a key piece that'll help you be more successful as time goes on. Yeah. I think that's great advice. I love it. So I'm sure you have many more to share, but I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I thank you so much for your wisdom and your generosity of thought and your insights today. I hope that we can tap you again in the future uh, where you'll be able to share more stories with us, more wisdom, et cetera. This was delightful, Steve. Yeah, appreciate it, Mindy. And uh, great to be on the show. And uh, thank you to you for all the great work that you and your team are doing here in the industry. Thank you. Steve shared wise advice. Every advisor can grow to whatever level he wants to. The only barriers are self-imposed. Address your mindset first and foremost, and the rest will come more naturally. I thank you for listening. 
And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or by cell at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And a special thanks to advisorhub.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.